0: Welcome to City Tech Stories, a podcast highlighting the experience and voices of the City Tech community. Each episode will center around a theme and include perspectives from across the college.
1: Welcome to the latest
0: episode of City Tech Stories. Today, we are very excited to have a special guest from the Kingsborough Community College Urban Farm. We're joined by Maya Marie, an urban farmer here in New York City, who's going to talk a little bit about the work she does at KCC and also in the city um, as a farmer and educator. My name's Nora. I'm conducting this interview today with my colleague, Juanette, from the City Tech Library. So whenever you guys are ready, let's just dive right in. Maya, would you like to start with just a brief introduction of yourself for our listeners?
2: Um, I could give a, a quick introduction of myself. So I'm an urban farmer, and uh, right now I, I presume that role at KCC Urban Farm as the assistant farm manager and the uh, food education coordinator. And that means that I, I wear a lot of hats. <laughs> um, and alongside that, I am also, you know, a writer outside of the farm and Doing a lot of like food history, food research related to African diaspora as well as indigenous histories, and and food agricultural technologies. So a lot of that work has is my is my interest. Um, working and in, in learning and um, sharing information about Afro Indigenous diaspora and food histories. And at the farm, we incorporate a lot of that in. To the curriculum as well as just in like the practices that we have on the farm. So as like the assistant farm manager, I'm working along with students who are paid paid student aides who are crew on the farm, and they are learning how to, you know, start crops from seedlings, um, starting them from seeds, like uh, doing propagation and getting things in the ground, building compost learning about food systems, and also, we also incorporate a lot of, you know, alongside the work of growing food, we're also supporting students and deepening their knowledge around critical analysis of the food system and how what that means on a day-to-day. So it's not just like the fancy academic jargon, but also really breaking things down in a way that they can relate to. And that's the same thing that is really important in our food education programming. So it's like, you know, yes, it's important to talk about nutrition and how to understand how food works with your body. For me, coordinating all of that and and creating curriculum and working with students, it's, it's most important that they're deepening their relationship to food. And that I think will also support their ability to eat healthy and have a nutritious diet and, and not from a, a point of view that's about like body shaming or um, uplifting certain cuisines over others. Instead, it's like helping them reconnect to what I believe innately they have, even if they don't even realize it yet. And, and some students do, some students don't. Um, they're coming from different vantage points and it's really important and the food education programming, as well as the farming programming that we have for students, whether they work on the farm or they're coming there for a tour or a visit, that they feel affirmed and seen and and learn something new or feel like they have something that they can share in the space. So that's a lot of the work that I do at KCC and at the farm.
3: That's great, Maya. I mean, I, I think that ties into one of the first questions that we have for you, uh, we met when I enrolled in your The Soul Food, Tracing the Origins of Southern Crops and Food waste Training through NYC Parks Green Thumb. And, you know, my goals for enrolling in the program was to learn a lot about what you said, not necessarily to learn to cook, which I'm already, you know, very familiar with. I think the two different things are um, separate, right? So, what motivated you to make this offering to, I guess, adults and non-CUNY students, right? So this work was born out of your work at the farm or was it informed by, you know, that work at any point? Or is it more part of your your passion project, Seeds and Receipts?
2: Oh, yeah. Seeds and Receipts, my, my passion, my my love, my little baby. It, it goes back a little bit far. It's, I'll try to sum it in a not long-winded way. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that KCC has influenced my, what I, I think what it's, the, the expectations of working with like grants and funders who are very much like save the brown people perspective when it comes to nutrition and cooking and food and what communities need to thrive. And I think being squished in that alongside my own, personal development and my own political education, um, over the past five or so years, you know, it, it started from just my love of cooking with food to then realizing, oh, like, I really want to grow food. Like this is something that I could do to then being like, okay, I want to help people feel healthier. And then taking my first nutrition classes and being like, this is really like, this feels off. I don't feel welcome here. Why is that? And I think culinary as well as nutrition environments are complex but oftentimes uh it centers like a european perspective it centers at, like a scarcity mindset where it's like what are, what can you deprive of yourself what are you doing wrong um and I think in my development of understanding race and gender class accessibility and other other groups of, of folks in other communities and wanting to create something and I think that's where my project will see the receipts has come out of. And also, it's also why the, the programming at um, Bring It Home for food edu- the food education program of the farm has evolved to, we talk about nutrition and we talk about building cooking skills, because those are really important. And to make it more holistic, it's, it's also that I guess that, that constraint from funders, you know, it's, it's kind of like a form of resistance to be like, oh, we're going to talk about African diaspora in this curriculum. We're going to highlight how you know nutritious leafy greens are and why that is a part of uh, West African, Central African countries' diets and what they've grown. And we only have a, maybe if we're doing a cooking demo, we're doing a, a workshop that's like an hour, we only have so much time to, to talk about things and, and cover so much. And I think what's important is to like a starting point um, for students to to begin their own journey of reconnecting and deepening their relationship, and and that's what's really important to me. And I, I feel like just building spaces from from that drive, and that that's also why I I wanted to I created the the Soul of food course and opened it up because a lot of times within CUNY it's it's about making money, and I feel like a large portion of our students as well as um staff and I don't know about faculty and, and graduate students and things like they are struggling financially and I, I don't feel good charging them money for something that I think is their inheritance and I feel like knowledge and information is 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 a is a heritage that particularly people of color as well as people of, of European descent who are disconnected from a lot of the nuance of European cultures that are very rich. I I feel like it they shouldn't have to pay for that. I don't feel like people or students should have to pay <laughs> to learn about something that's a part of their culture. And I was really excited to partner with Green Thumb to to offer that to whoever, whether it's students, adults, you know, their families in any age. I, I tried to make it, you know, a lot of it was like a, a good portion of lecture, so maybe for uh, kind of geared towards like 18 and up attention span that I'm working on. But I, I think the intention is that it's open for anyone. And I want it to be free of cost because I don't think folks should be paying for something that I think is is theirs to begin with. It's not even really, I, I'm just, I feel like I'm just a resource and, and sort of a, not to sound like, like sort of a vessel right. <laughs> for folks to, <laughs> to tap Daddy, into. You,
3: you bring up a good point. Uh, I'm glad that you brought in the financial aspect of it because I think as these kinds of Program offerings become more common that you start to see certain communities making big monetary gains from them, right? And then that makes it more inaccessible to to people who uh, could benefit the most from learning these skills, right? Who have fewer food options, who learning to manage these things in a different way would benefit their lives in a different manner than those who have more resources. So the financial aspect of it, I think, is really really important. So by partnering with Green Thumb it allowed you to have, you know, your monetary gain from it while still offering the program for free.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Which I, I think is so awesome. I, 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 I love seeing city see agencies doing that. And I I think what a lot of folks saw throughout the city, like the, the budget cuts and stuff. And it's like, no, like we need this. <laughs> like don't put the cost on the, on the people, you know, when there's, I believe there's plenty of funding. Um, to offset or or subsidize. It's like, yes, facilitators, educators, cooks, you know, food people, farmers need to get paid. It is labor. It is work. Do I want to charge people who who need it or who want it? No. (laughs) Do I still have bills to pay? Yes. So I I think there needs to be something that is, there needs to be a different system. And I I was really grateful and, and excited that green thumb I was was able to partner with green thumb and I'm I'm looking for partnerships like that for the work that I'm doing because yeah I just I (laughs) I I don't think I've ever operated very well in a capitalist framework even before I had that language I you know when I was a little kid and I was selling crochet stuff I just give it away (laughs) right (laughs) yeah
0: I mean I guess like I was thinking as you're talking about you know the city budget cuts and what that means for programs like the KCC farm or like the kinds of initiatives that you're talking about I was I was specifically thinking about the compost program and how in the wake of city cuts, there ends up being like a lot of times a community effort, like people realize, oh, this was like really an important thing to me, or I felt like this was a really Mm
1: -hmm.
0: important thing. So I guess I'm curious a little bit aside from the funding um, aspect, obviously, probably a lot of the work that you do at the at the farm. And um, if you want to talk a little, maybe just define for our listeners a little bit more about what the seeds and receipts, what, what is that program? Um, how and how is that how is I guess all of the work that you're kind of doing how has that been changed as a result of the pandemic and maybe obviously financial changes have impacted some I'm sure some of the work that you do but also I'm sure that there's been a lot of like difference in the way that you do education outreach like the program that one that was mentioning so yeah I'd just love to hear a little bit more about kind of how your work has changed because of the pandemic and even maybe just people recognizing that this work is more important
2: yeah, um, I'll start with I'll start with seeds and receipts. Give a little bit more about that. So, seeds and receipts is an ongoing multimedia project that I started right after I graduated from Hunter College last year because I was like, I, I love the there's I have such a love hate relationship with academia. I, I love like the the intensive learning and studying and deepening knowledge and like going through archival pictures, reading articles, just really deepening how I understand the world and my place in it. And I, I wanted to continue doing that, but I didn't feel like there were any graduate programs that would allow me to to dig into the topics that I wanted to and, and, and would also not be exploitative <laughs> and would, would allow me to kind of like meander and also support and mentorship and I still am looking for that, but for now, um, the project it, it's it's kind of um, uplifting a lot of the histories of African diaspora through different ways. So there's different components to the website. One component is offering like food education, and I say that term meaning like talking about the agricultural, culinary, and land and um, people aspects of different crops. So it involves like I have like libraries um or I call them quote unquote libraries or galleries on the site that profile different um chefs. Right now I have like the first library of chefs and then I have galleries of different crops and photos, but also like history of them. And then there's illustrations by um POC artists on there. And so this element is meant to be like here's the, the history behind these plants and animals and foods. And here are the people and the, the, the hands that go into this. Here's how this dish started. And then the other aspect is kind of autobiographical, which are recreations of dishes from my childhood, as well as ones throughout my, my early adulthood um, and different things like that. And talking about different memories or reflections on those dishes And the point of me doing that is to kind of push back on the, what I feel is sort of a a white supremacist standard of doing research and recording history in a way that is very like objective and removes you from it. And instead including myself in the recording of the history and the, and telling it. So, which it feels a little uncomfortable sometimes (laughs) because I, I don't like talking about myself. So I think that has been an interesting way to also unlearn some things that I learned some habits or or ways of thinking that I've held about, you know, my, my value or worth in the world. And it it really is long-term, I want it to be something that people can use and be a resource to any, any interest that they have or research that they want to do that they can then, you know, build on. I, I, I feel like right now it doesn't, It's just starting out, and I'm just building it out. But I want it to be a resource to people. I want it to be an educational resource, and also a place where people can go and be like, oh, like this person was a homeschooled Black person, and this is what she was interested in, and this is who her family was, and maybe that'll be important to somebody in the future. <laughs> and also, if if that isn't of your interest, there will be, you know, why. Do we have like biscuit cutters? Like why are biscuits a thing? Why is cornbread important to Southern people? And why is it also important to to, to Latinx people? Why is it so widespread? And I, I want that to be available to folks as much as possible, even if it makes me feel a little bit uh the autobiographical part makes me feel a little bit uh self-conscious. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I've actually read some really cool, I've been uh, thinking about that in like relation to my own work, because I think, you know, one of the the benefits of of, like autoethnography or including kind of personal information in your research is that it does make it more accessible to people who might not find like academic work accessible to read, you know? So yeah, I think that that's a really interesting, that's that's totally valid and interesting approach, I think.
3: But it, it does speak to what you were saying does speak to the vulnerability, I think, that you feel as a person of color making that kind of decision, right? Like, there's already so much pulling out of, or, or I don't know how to phrase it, like like an offering up of our personal experience at this moment that I think for me, my foray into ethnographic research has been kind of put on pause, you know, because mm-hmm. of that discomfort. Like, how much more do you have to share, you right. know? so it it does i can I can totally understand why you have that discomfort, but I do think that it's so important to encourage other black people, specifically people of color in general, to get into careers related to food. you know it I think that we have a limited view of what we what we consider options you know for ourselves, so including some of that personal aspect can make it more accessible, especially to people who you wish would continue
2: that work. Yeah, I think it's really I, I appreciate I appreciate that from you all. And I I want to answer a little bit more of your other um of the other parts of your question about how the pandemic has influenced it. I think in building the website it, it's gotten more important because I I don't know. I have it on this this one the about page too. A little bit it's a little dark, but I, I feel there's a, a, a finiteness to the way things are in the world right now. And I feel a, a bit of a sense of urgency in, in my work that Sometimes it doesn't always make sense to me, like, you know, why am I really into this history? And I I have some of the answers, but (laughs) I think the pandemic has influenced it, not so much in like, of of the the obvious things, is like going virtual, you know, but I'm a pretty tech savvy, tech interested person. So I I think I, even before the pandemic, I was playing around with the idea of making um, videos for, for seeds and receipts or making videos for farm crew, for the students which is a little bit more contingent upon the budget at the farm. Whereas with my own personal projects, I'm investing my own money in it. So I'm a little more uh, willing to to work on technological things <laughs> and, and design. So the biggest thing that the pandemic has influenced in my work, both proceeds and receipts, both as like a writer, a photographer, food educator, farmer, is... I don't know. It's just a sense of urgency. I feel like, oh my gosh, I need to to work on this. How am I connecting with folks? Like, um, let me work on this part of the project. How can I garner some support here? How can I make this more relatable to folks? How can I scale this in a way that's sustainable and supports other folks who I want to bring into this work? And I think there's a there was urgency when I graduated last year but i think there's more urgency now because i I just feel like any day now that the world's gonna implode (laughs) or or something else bad is gonna happen and i i i'm pretty i'm pretty upbeat and and optimistic but there's a part of me that is very uh i don't i don't exist in a a mode that the next day is promised so or for the next year so I, i try to get as much done and and do the best that I can do every, every moment that I'm here. And I think the pandemic has kind of exasperated that. (laughs) I don't know that it's like, it's a little darker than I, yeah. No,
3: I, I I totally hear you on that. I think a lot of people, I think you just articulated a thing, a feeling that people are having and and don't know how to share, especially when, you know, I always tell friends, and I'm fortunate to have friends from many different backgrounds, but, you know, if you do start to feel like the cloud of doom a little bit, you know, as a person of color who has kind of seen these, the writing on the wall for some of the things that have recently happened, oh. and you're not necessarily surprised by it, you know. <laughs> so I, I, think that, I think that kind of informs that feeling of it's something that we all live with, and you just become used to navigating around your, your joy around it, your, you know, your life, your breaks from it all, you know, it becomes part of who you are in a way. Mm. and and I think that that is something that other people are starting to wake up to and struggling to assimilate into their normal life
1: mm.
0: yeah and I think well I think the library that you have and we'll definitely link out to the website and the libraries that you've created like you know the artwork is beautiful and at this it's like it's funny that you're like oh you know it's like this dark this dark thing has made me feel like it's more urgent for people to like have this hopeful thing that connects them to history and, you know, to where they come from. So I feel like there's a lot of lightness and (laughs) darkness there. Right. And I think we're going to just take a brief pause for a short commercial interlude. Today's podcast is brought to you by born to walk the transformative power of a pedestrian act by Dan Rubenstein. Available now as an ebook at the City Tech Library, combining fascinating reportage, eye-opening research, and Rubenstein's own discoveries, Born to Walk explores how far this ancient habit can take us, how much repair is within range, and guarantees that you'll never again take walking for granted.
3: No, a, a lot of what you're saying about your goals for um, season receipts and a lot of your feelings on academia, I think you fit into the library world. I think a lot of us became librarians for you know for those reasons. Like we get to exist in the sphere of academia, we get to help students, but it's very different from being a classroom, uh,
1: like a classroom faculty
3: member. You know, I love that archival aspect. Research aspect of being a librarian, so a lot of what you were saying resonated with me in that way too, you know. And even though some of what you said could be construed as dark, everything about farming is hopeful, you know. Mm. Everything about it is planning for a later day. So maybe your your hope is accessed in that way, you know, rather than in your your like more
2: everyday thoughts.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, farming is a very hopeful practice. It astounds me every spring when I, I, you know, I've only been farming, I haven't been farming as long as, you know, elders who are, you know, out in the South and and Northeast and other areas of the country. I've been farming for about, I would say, like six years. And every year I'm still, I I still kind of like cross my fingers that the seeds that we, the first seeds that we sow for the season will come up and I'm like, What if they don't this year? What if the germination rate, even though it's ninety nine (laughs) point nine percent, what if they don't come (laughs) up? And it's just this miracle that is just astounding. And it, I'm, I I don't ever get prideful and like, oh, I grew that thing. It's like I supported this living being, like any other living being that is autonomous, and it's taught me so much in my relationships with other beings as well as people. and it's like, you know, you, you you put the seed in the ground, and you maybe it'll come up, maybe it won't. Most of the times it works out really well, sometimes it doesn't, and it's just a part of existing in it. It is very hopeful, it's true on it. That's really, things are reminding me of that. It's,
1: it's one yeah, totally. I,
2: I I'm a pessimist,
3: so I think... I think I have learned to to look for the ways that I am hopeful without even realizing it, right, like obviously through my children um but in a more tangible way, through the making of things, right so I have not yet had the the good fortune to to farm on any kind of you know outside of window farming way, but making things does give me that same that same feeling, right so like the act of creating a thing is is hopeful, you know
0: archives are hopeful too, why not? It's also that's, it's that's also true. a bet on the future. It's also that's like, oh, um,
3: <laughs> I believe, I believe. That's very true. <laughs> you know, so, you're, you're saving the thing because you
1: you, you anticipate think someone, someone yeah. needing it. You yeah. know. Yeah. Oh. For sure.
0: So Maya, can you tell us a little bit, just like more getting into like what you actually grow on the farm? I know, and I, and for, I guess like for our listeners, like who don't know like where Kingsborough Community College and where the farm is, like, I don't, I, and I'm not a farmer. So like, I don't know (laughs) if there's anything specific about the environment that informs what you plant there. I know it's really close to the ocean and that kind of thing. So I'd love to hear just more about like what you grow there.
2: Yeah. Well, the farm is in a very, um, unique spot is on uh like all of new york on a on um, lenae lenape land particularly canarsie land and it is by the water it is by the by the ocean i believe it's i want to say ocean but I, like anyone one of my farmer friends from the farm hears that they're gonna be like my answer but it's not the ocean but i think it is the ocean <laughs>
0: Well, there's that little inlet there. It's kind of like a bay. Yeah. I don't know. It's saltwater. Yeah. Yeah. It's an offshoot of the
1: ocean, anyway.
2: <laughs> yeah. So the where the, the there's kind of a microclimate. Um, because we're by the water, it gets colder there faster. We get a lot of humidity and fog, um, throughout different points in the year. Uh, like a couple weeks ago, when there was a fog in the city, there was a very thick fog by the farm. <laughs> But, but so that influences what we grow in a variety of ways. I mean, we still, as a urban farm that is operating in a in the most sustainable way that we possibly can, meaning in like our, our practices, meaning rotating where the crops are grown each, each year so that we're not depleting the soil, putting nutrients back in the soil with, with crops, like cover crops that are not for us to consume, but are for the earth to consume. And alongside that, we're growing a lot of our vegetables and fruits that are meant to reflect the, the types of the the variety not variety <laughs> I'm thinking of plants Re- to, to to reflect the students at the school which are largely Caribbean Latinx um as well as Eastern European that means that we grow a lot of we grow a lot of leafy greens like callu uh we grow peppers we grow collards uh tomatoes Eggplants. And it's also really fun when there are, are, are students who will be like, This is like my grandma calls this plant a different name, or we call this that, or I haven't seen this in forever, um, you know, especially if they're first or second generation um, immigrants. So it's really important for us to grow a variety of crops, both for feeding the soil, feeding the ecosystem, as well as to Offer that to the students, to 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 their delight. um, Hopefully, Uh, grow a lot of hearty herbs like thyme, parsley, basil, things like that, Um, as well as a lot of um, medicinal herbs. And the medicinal herbs are largely there. The thing that's really interesting about herbs and medicine, although from what I've learned from a lot of my friends who are herbalists or um, work more closely with herbal medicine, is that any plant is really medicinal depending on how you interact with it and whatever your relationship to it is um but there are some plants on the farm that we particularly call medicinal herbs because of they that's how they're most commonly used in like a, a a medicinal way so that includes like different times like motherwort or or mugwort mullein and all of these are plants that kind of just spring up on their own stinging nettle which has taken over many parts of the farm but we try to show a lot of respect for these herbs and plants because we believe that they they pop up as a to support us and to you know take care of us. Um, and you know while we do weed the farm and weed whack and clear areas so that there isn't a huge pest population for other crops that we want. We do try to keep a lot of the medicinals that pop up on their own, and the former farm educator was a was really in in charge of leading a lot of the medicinal herbal practices that we now have on the farm. It it was somewhat of the case before they were working with us, but it didn't really become a thing until they started, until they were the farm educator. So yeah, that's kind of like a whirlwind, long-winded answer.
0: (laughs) what we grow that's awesome yeah I I love that you talk about you know the weed species I have some friends that are part of a collective and and they call them uh spontaneous urban plants instead of weeds
2: oh I
1: love that
0: yeah I'll I'll share a link
1: with you like
2: outside of this they have yeah yeah, because I feel like if I ever use that term I want to credit the right people instead of like (laughs) the I learned this, you know, by myself. (laughs) Well, yeah,
0: they're just like really into this idea of like breaking down the kind of indigenous versus, you know, invasive species binaries and stuff like that. Anyway, it's it's a cool project. Let's just take a abrupt commercial interlude. Today's podcast was brought to you by City of Forest, City of Farms, Sustainability Planning for New York City's Nature by Lindsay K. Campbell. Available now as an ebook through the City Tech Library this book presents a history of recent urban forestry and agriculture policy and programs in New York City learn more about the policies and sustainability efforts that the city has engaged in since they first started plan nyc in 2007
3: your mention of the former farm educator reminded me of some of the i guess financial struggles that the farm has been going through and and it ties into your point about um, monetary gain, right? So there can be, for me, a little bit of conflict in the fact that the farm will continue to positively benefit from the work of a person who's no longer there, right? So like they incorporated these great practices and this this wonderful concept of working with, rather than against weeds, you know, wh- whenever possible. Um, do you want to share a little bit about how the pandemic and and cost cutting across CUNY in general has impacted the farm, uh, or or even if you care to your feelings about, you know, when you may someday move on, do you view leaving that legacy, your legacy there, as a as a positive, as a as a part of a hopeful, the hopeful aspect of farming?
2: Yeah, I can answer both those those questions. I'll try to be succinct.
1: <laughs> I feel like I keep going on long winded,
2: but. Yeah, I think it it is kind of tragic that I, you know, there isn't a lot of, uh, well, I feel like there is some evidence that the the CUNY system as a whole, particularly the KCC um, administration, they haven't really prioritized fully funding the farm in a lot of ways. I think, they'll, you know, the the pandemic is a just a very convenient scapegoat for that because you know we've been doing this work doing amazing work on a, a shoestring budget and garnering a lot of good press and praise and and yet you know we're pushed to write grants get outside funding work with what we have um you know just be grateful and and, and compliant and <laughs> i don't know it's it's i just think it's it's in Interesting that it's not interesting, but I I feel like it's very, it's very reflective of the priorities that the CUNY system has. And I, I keep saying CUNY and not just KCC because I think things start at a very high level. You know, I think whoever is at the the highest at CUNY can at any moment push a button to fund whatever section or or push or, or advocate or send a proposal to whoever is in the New York city government to give them money. And they don't. And I, I don't say that to be like inflammatory or, you know, whatever. It's just, I just feel like it's the truth. I, I think when they want to do something, like <laughs> we have this funny story on the farm where we, we, we need a sink. We haven't had a sink. The farm has been asking for a sink for the past. I don't know. the the nine years that it's existed. And, you know, you would think we're doing food education, we're doing farming, we're working with con- in conditions that would need a sink. You would have thought that they would have given us a sink when we first built it. Um, but we still don't have a sink. We use like a faucet and hand soap that we, we go to regularly to maintain like sanitary conditions on the farm. And, but it it sounds almost like, how are we in 2020, on a farm with technology and a college campus that we're going to a faucet like we live in, in impoverished conditions. Despite wanting a sink and asking for a sink, somehow they found the budget to get contractors and uh, materials to rip out a drain on the farm that we didn't ask them to rip out. And they spent two days Taking out some cement, pouring cement, like maybe ten or so laborers on the farm, where we asked them, like, "Can you not do this? We don't need this done? Can you use whatever money you're trying to spend to to build us a sink <laughs> <laughs> and they were like no we're 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 fixing this we're building this really pretty drain, and we're also going to to make this that we have this pull down gate that we manual and they decide to make it electronic again another project we didn't ask them to bring in a full contracted crew to come do and it's it's like they have money for these things you see it's like these this example of what i'm trying to get across is like they can for whatever reason i don't know whose cousin uncle they promised to give a job and it required building a drain or fixing a, a gate door to make it automatic can you can can you tell them that we don't want that and we'd like a sink? <laughs> <laughs> and it and and I know that that costs money for them to have whether they're paying those people poor wages or not. I'm sure that those jobs were several thousand dollars, and that is not something that we requested. We've made our requests. We've formally written proposals, grants, whatever they ask us whenever, even before they ask us. And they don't. We've told them. Them how much staffing we need, and they give us these partial, you know, payrolls. Part of my my salary comes from a grant that I wrote, <laughs> and it is very to me disgusting, especially when we lose uh, people. Or you know, the farm educator was the first person, um, not the first person, but from the most recent cohort of staff. Who, who left because they found that it wasn't sustainable. They were like, this is not, I love this work. I love these students. I love my, my my crew. I love working with y'all, but this is not sustainable. And not only that, but the campus is extremely transphobic and hostile. And, you know, that adds to, as people of color, you know, weathering, like that's spiritually, you know, and if <laughs> the other thing is, if you're you're working all these part-time jobs and they're not paying for your therapy, What does that do to a person over time, over a year, over two years, three years, and not related to the budget cuts, but more so related to just the hostility and the conservativeness of the KCC environment, which is only just a microcosm of the conservativeness of the entire community campus, Um, conservative in the sense of y'all work with what you got, we're not going to take care of you, Um, stop complaining. And the transphobicness and the homophobicness and the racism. The, the farm manager recently left in mid October and that is largely due to a lot of the, the transphobic treatment that they experienced over the past five years. So it is like, I think what is shifting in the culture of nonprofit is that particularly with people of color that I know, whether they're farmers or educators is that we are, and I, I can't speak for everyone, but I get the sense that it is like we are so passionate and we are so invested, not in both, both you know, not just in ourselves, but also in our students. Like we are invested in the growth of other people and not just students, but people who are of color, are of other um, ethnicity and groups and who are marginalized. We're invested in their growth, we're invested in their access to resources, we're invested in their own political education and working within a nonprofit that is telling you to function in a capitalist hamster wheel way of get funding not enough funding beg for more is is not sustainable and it is like it, it were i think people are beginning to realize oh like this this doesn't work they don't realize it doesn't work and they don't care that it's hurting us so why are we here <laughs> <laughs> and i i don't no, I think I am. I'm, I'm holding on to the farm for as long as I can, and you know, with the the limited crew that we have now, um, as the season closes out, and just we'll we'll see. I don't. I don't really know what's going to happen next year. All I know is that myself, as well as my my former colleagues, are going to continue to to produce amazing work. That's just we don't. Know how to do mediocre work, like the administrators who have six-figure salaries. Yeah,
3: yeah, that's that's depressing to hear. And you know what? Depressing is not even the right word. It's it's more. Um, I've worked for several city agencies at this point in my career, and it's it's kind of par for the course. You know, un- unfortunately, I guess a practical question about the future of the farm. What happens to your materials? What happens to your, you know, your tools, the crops? Like, is there ever a point in farming where you can just drop everything like that? You know, whether it's due to funding or not, you know, just the, the practical part of ending quote unquote uh,
2: farming in a particular spot. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that it's really up to me to decide how I I... I... Try to give my expertise to the administrators of like we cannot function (laughs) with one person. We cannot function on just grants. Someone needs to make the push to the higher ups that this is critical. Not only for students, I mean, like the whole purpose of the farm, it it, that in in its current state is to educate students to offer them free food resources. And to be a space where they feel affirmed, like it is, it is a service, you know, the, not my favorite word in regards to, you know, offering access to resources to people of color. But what we do is we are, we are at service to them. We are providing them free food, free vegetables, free food education, free cooking classes. Um, I feel like that should be important, particularly during a pandemic and I don't know. I I I imagine that they are going to try and strategize (laughs) how to keep the farm functioning with putting as little money into it as they possibly can and begging other people to do that instead. Other people being funders and and outside sources is what I imagine will happen. And it is very sad and I I don't really know, you know, it I I guess I'm kind of going through different stages of worry and concern about the farm because there is you know things that seem very obvious to me very obvious solutions and i think it in a way comes down to like are they willing to invest and it is long overdue it's not like it's not a complicated math problem (laughs) it's just they need a farm manager they need a farm educator who is the liaison between students, faculty, staff, and the farm, and they need farm educator. And these main roles need assistance in doing that, that not just for the sake of like our job responsibilities are extensive, but in that we're cultivating leadership for people to carry on to continue the work of the farm. It's like, I that is my understanding of having people who are in a, in, a, in an assistant role in a, a coordinator role is that not that they are are less than or that they don't carry knowledge but it's like a form of mentorship and I feel like right. at a minimum that's that six staff people and then there's also the students the students need to get paid I don't <laughs> I'm glad that students were able to get student aides so who can get paid $15 an hour but that's not a living wage in New York you know I have part-time CLT and CA hours and that is is not enough. I, I I know that getting paid fifteen dollars an hour is is even more so rough. And I feel like students deserve to be paid at least twenty five dollars an hour. And they have oftentimes, especially at KCC, they have families whether they it's their own siblings that they're taking care of, grandparents, um, their own children. They're not just taking care of themselves. They're not regular college students. And I think that's across CUNY. They're not.
3: That's very you know, true.
2: coming from an Ivy League or even if it's not an Ivy League, they're, they're CUNY students, they're in the city. There's a lot of different living circumstances and, and challenges that people face in the city. And if someone decides they want to go to school and they can get a flexible part-time job at the school, they should be paid in a way that is going to help them get through school with less stress. I don't think it should be, oh, let me work for twenty hours maximum because that's the requirement in the system and only get paid fifteen dollars an hour and also still juggle four or five six classes as well right. as
1: taking of my family.
3: Right. And sometimes another job.
1: And <laughs> sometimes on another on, job.
3: Depending exactly. on the how great their their financial need is, you know, which I think as you pointed out, all of us living in the city, it it's all great. You know, <laughs> the expectations <laughs> are high, high for everyone.
1: Well, I've
0: said it before. We'll say it again. Hope the governor listens to our podcast <laughs> <laughs> and is like, "Wow, oh, this is a microcosm of a larger of a larger austerity issue." And like, hmm. Mm-hmm you know, I think, I think you, I really appreciate your thoughts, Maya. I think, you know, a lot of educators in this moment who might hear this, like also understand um, the experience of being like an expert, right? Like you're an expert and you have this knowledge about how this, not only about farming, but also about how this system works. Like you've been there, right? You see the needs of this space, right? And then, yeah, it's really hard if people are not, understanding your expertise or valuing your expertise in terms of like the recommendations that you're providing. That sounds, yeah. I mean, we definitely sympathize over here and um, (laughs) yeah, I think, I mean, I really appreciate your like very thoughtful, I I think, you know, obviously we're talking about a specific space, but I really, I really appreciate your thoughtful comments about this for sure. And um, I know we've, I know we've been talking for a while. Um, Is there anything else that you'd like to just share before we, before we wrap up, is, is there any, like, I don't know, important last thing or, I don't know, resource that you'd like to point people to or something that you'd like people to know?
2: Um, I mean, aside from seeds and receipts, before mentioning that, I guess I want to also really stress that I, I I get nervous about making the the farm. I don't want to be, like, self-centered about the farm, but I feel like it is, it's like, like you are saying, like, it's like a bigger, part of a bigger problem. I don't want it to be a resource that students lose. I know when I was a student and I first learned about the farm before I became a staff person. And I was like, whoa, like I get to come here. I get to be in this space. And I and the feedback that oftentimes we get from students who come to the farm and visit the farm and maybe they visit once and don't come aren't able to come visit ever again because of this life or they become part of it. And are are like, wow, like this space was really safe for me. This space really helped me get through this. Or I didn't totally appreciate this space at first, and then I went somewhere else. Or I learned
1: this one thing once, and I took it somewhere else. And, you know, wherever the farm goes, I, I hope that I can continue to do that. Bring that to students and offer that to them and hopefully see them continue to grow in their own ways. After all that I've said, I really do love the concept of CUNY. I just think that there's been a lot of, I, I think it
2: can be better. And yeah, I just want to stress the complexity of my, my love-hate relationship with it. So that people, you know, aren't, I, I'm, I'm very
1: grateful for the education that I was able to get from CUNY and I'm also like, this can be better. So thanks y'all. <laughs>
0: Thanks so much, Maya. We really appreciate you talking to us. I know we got three CUNY alums on the line. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Juanette, for facilitating sure. all questions. Yeah, I really i am glad this came together. And, yeah, I hope it's a cool podcast. We'll find <laughs> out.
3: <laughs> Fingers crossed. We'll see.
0: So let's dive right in. Uh, Maya, do you mind just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself to get started?